Well, good morning. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6. It's been uh, a few months since we've been in the book of Acts, but uh, we are back. Uh, we're starting our new series to Judea. Um, if you remember uh, what we talked about way back uh, in Acts chapter 1, there's this passage where in Acts chapter 1, uh, Jesus tells his disciples, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So uh, Jesus tells that <clears throat> to his disciples, and that Acts is kind of an outline for the book of Acts. So you have uh, the Jerusalem section, which we went through uh, a couple months ago, and now we ha- we're going to go through the Judea and Samaria section. Uh, but to Judea and Samaria just sounded too lengthy, so I shortened it to two Judea. Um, and so that's what we're going to be going through uh, over the next uh, few weeks. So if you have your Bibles, Acts chapter 6, beginning in verse 8, is where we're going to be this morning. Uh, this is a really long passage, the story of Stephen here. And so uh, I'm going to read the first part of it, and I'm going to be doing a lot more summarizing today than I normally do, um, and just kind of hitting the highlights of the passage. We'll be going uh, this morning all the way through, uh, beginning in chapter 6, verse 8, and then all the way through all of chapter 7 as well this morning. Um, is the story of Stephen. Acts chapter 6, beginning verse 8, says this, And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, that, as it was called, and, and of the Cyrenians, and of the Alexandrians, and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. I pray this morning that you would give us boldness to apply what it says. That you would give us a a determination uh, to live lives that glorify you, that that lift you up and praise you with all that we are, God. that, That this morning we would be people that love you and praise you and glorify you forever. I pray, Father, that, that your word would, would sharpen us, would shape us, would mold us this morning, point out our flaws, point out the, the ways that we fall short of you, God. And I pray this morning that we would have ears to hear and a heart ready to apply what you're speaking to us. We love you and praise you. It's the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Now, I love William Wallace. I think William Wallace is somebody that we should all look up to, somebody we should all strive to be like. Um, You see, William Wallace uh, had beliefs. He had strong beliefs that he wanted to, uh, that that he he firmly believed in, no matter what other people said. And so he he stuck to those beliefs, even when he was in prison for his beliefs, even when he was killed for them. He, He stuck to his beliefs. William Wallace is a hero of the Christian faith. Now, if that last sentence sounds weird to you, because you're probably thinking of William Wallace from Braveheart, which is a really good movie, but not who I'm talking about. See, I'm talking about William Bill Wallace, uh, who was born in the 1900s uh, and uh, was a medical missionary to China. You see, Bill Wallace 
uh, was in his garage working on a car in the uh, early uh, 1920s. And he was praying and, and wondering, God, what am I going to do with my life? What is it that you're calling me to? What is it that I'm supposed to be doing? And, uh, and he felt the Lord lead him to go become a medical missionary. So at 17, he, he uh, finished high school and he enrolled in college and, uh, and studied, uh, spent 10 years studying to be a doctor. And he, he gave up several prestigious opportunities to, to practice medicine here in the States. Uh, and he wrote a letter to the, what is now the International Mission Board. And he sent them a letter saying, I don't know where you want to send me, but I'm ready. Like, send me somewhere. I, I've been thinking about Africa, but, you know, wherever there's a need, send me there. I want to go serve those people. I want to go share the gospel somewhere uh, in the world. And at the same time that he was writing the, a letter, uh, some people in China, some missionaries in China were writing a letter to the IMB saying, send us a surgeon. Like, we desperately need a surgeon here in China. And, sent the, and those two letters crossed. They met at the IMB. And so, sure enough, Bill Wallace was assigned to go to China as a medical missionary, and he went there and had an incredible ministry there. He went and started this hospital and met the needs of, of countless people who were there in China. It was said of Bill Wallace that if you wanted to find him, go find the sickest person in the hospital, and he was going to be right there. Like He was going to be there serving them, sharing the gospel with them, meeting their needs. That was Bill Wallace. He had a firm belief that the people in China needed the gospel, that loving and serving Jesus mattered more than anything else, and so he was going to be there. Bill Wallace was there uh, during the Japanese takeover of China uh, during World War II. Uh, he was also there uh, when the, during the communist takeover of China after World War II. And so he endured political obstacles. He endured a lot of turmoil. And regardless of what the circumstances looked like, regardless of the, the outlook uh, for his ministry, he stayed. He never thought about leaving because he knew that the people there in China needed the gospel. And he was going to share it. He was going to be there to give them exactly what they needed. Bill Wallace stood up for his faith in the face of opposition. At this point in the early church, I know it's been a while since we've been in the book of Acts, but at this point in the early church, things have been going really well for the, for the early church. There hasn't been a whole lot of external opposition. And it's, we, we've seen some. There's been some persecution. There's been threats of violence, but there hasn't been any real widespread persecution yet. Uh, at this point in the book of Acts, the biggest problems were internal, right? We saw just a few verses before uh, the last sermon that we talked about in the book of Acts. There was uh, an internal problem within the church where they, they had Hellenistic uh, Christians, some Christians influenced by Greek uh, backgrounds, who were getting skipped in the distribution of food. And so it was threatening to tear the church apart. Uh, and so the apostles and the church appointed seven men to go serve as a kind of deacon, um, to go... Uh, serve those tables, to go meet the needs within the church. One of those seven men was named Stephen. And they went and they served the needs in the church. They met and, and, and met all of the needs in the church. So the internal problems were quenched. The internal problems were taken care of. But at that same time, right as the internal problems were being taken care of, the external opposition and the external problems accelerated. And they took Stephen out in its wake. Look with me in verse 8 to see what was going on with Stephen. Stephen was full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. So this is what's happening. Stephen uh, is not just your regular deacon. Like this guy is out there uh, performing miracles by the power of God. Right? He, is, he is performing all these signs and wonders for the people of Israel. Now, 
this is something we've seen already several times in the book of Acts. This is something where there in the early church, it's mostly the apostles, but there are some others as well. There in the early church, God was giving these men very specific sets of skills, very specific abilities to perform signs and wonders to prove and give evidence to the fact that, that their testimony was true, that the gospel is the true message, that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior. It's very similar to why Jesus performed miracles while he was here on earth. Jesus performed miracles to give evidence to the fact that he really was the Son of God, that he said he was exactly who he said he was. And so in the same way, these apostles and then Stephen and some other men were performing signs and wonders in the early church to give proof and evidence to the fact that Jesus really was who he said he was, that he really was the Messiah. So he's performing these miracles. He's proclaiming the gospel to people uh, all over the, uh, in Judea, all over in Jerusalem. He's, he's proclaiming the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ. And there's a group of Hellenistic Jews from all over the place, from Egypt, from Africa, uh, and they come up to Stephen and they try to combat him. They try to, to, try to prove him wrong. It says here, in verse uh, 9, they rose up and disputed with Stephen, but verse 10, they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. So they come up and they're like, no, Jesus is not the Messiah. And they start throwing out their, their proofs, their verses, the things that they had memorized, all their best arguments. And Stephen keeps shooting them all down. Like He is, he is responding with such wisdom because the Holy Spirit has filled him and he is responding with wisdom and shooting down all of their arguments. And they finally realize they can't beat him. Like, there's no way that they can top his arguments. There's no way that they can beat him uh, or dispute his claims because he is responding with such wisdom. And so it's like the old saying goes, if you can't beat him, put him on trial for blasphemy. It's a really old saying. Really old. Um, and so that's what they do. They, they realize they can't beat him. They realize they can't top his arguments. So they get a group of guys together to give up some false claims against him. This group of witnesses say, yeah, we have heard him speak blasphemy against God. We have heard him uh, speak evil things, wicked things, incorrect things about God. And so they take Stephen and they bring him in front of the council, the Sanhedrin. We can picture a, a, a courtroom today uh, where there's a whole line of people, a whole jury who's just waiting to hear the evidence and waiting to rule on uh, the charges that are brought before him. And they get to this courtroom, they get to the the Sanhedrin, and they start lobbying all of these accusations against Stephen. They say he's, he's spoken evil, incorrect things about God. He, is, he has spoken uh, lies about who God is, lies about his people, and there are two specific things that they charge him with. We can see uh, in verse 13. They set up fal false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we've heard him say that Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. So, so they're charged with blasphemy, and they're specifically charging him with two things. That he's speaking against, <clears throat> speaking against the holy place and the temple, and that he's speaking against the law. That's the official charges against him. And you can see him, uh, Stephen, standing there in the, in the courtroom having all of these charges, all of these things lobbied against him, and he's standing there hearing all the things that he's being accused of, and we see here in verse 15 this really weird moment. They all look at him before he has a chance to speak. They look at him, and all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. I want you to look at that. I want you to think, hmm, that's weird. 
And then I want you to just put that in your back pocket. We're going to come back to that in a little bit. Yeah. And we're going to glance over that for now. But they lobby all of these charges against him. And then in, eight, in chapter 7, verse 1, the high priest said to him, are these things so? So the guy who's in charge of this trial, the guy who can ultimately decide his fate, he says, are these, is this true? This is your moment to respond. And all, pretty much all of chapter 7, most of chapter 7, is Stephen's response to these allegations of blasphemy, of speaking against the temple and speaking against the law. And the, the heart of this passage, the heart of the text, is this response. And what's crazy is in this book of Acts, uh, the, the author Luke devotes a lot of space to Stephen's response. Right? Luke is composing this book. He's putting things together. He can decide what he wants to put in and what he wants to to keep out, uh, and he decided to spend a lot of space on Stephen's response to these charges of blasphemy, of speaking against the temple and the law. Uh, and so it's important. Right? Luke thought they were important. Luke thought this response was important, not just uh, for Stephen's uh, trial. The response wasn't just important for what happened to Stephen. Uh, Luke thought this response was important because it's important to us. Right? His response is important to Christians everywhere. So let's take a moment and let's look at what Stephen's response was to these charges. Essentially what Stephen gives us is an Old Testament overview, like a very quick synopsis of some stories of things that happened in the Old Testament. And he starts like every good former Jew, he starts with Abraham. If we look here, uh, beginning in verse 2, Stephen says, of chapter 7, Stephen says, brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran and said to him, go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. And then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them for 400 years, quote, but I will judge the nation that they serve. And God said, uh, and after, they, after that, they shall come out and worship me in this place. So he, he starts with the story of Abraham, and specifically what he highlights is this promise from God to Abraham that, that the Israelites, his descendants, they would be enslaved and be sojourners and, and wanderers in a nation that is not theirs. And after 400 years, God would rescue them and they would worship him in the land of Israel. That's what, that's what, Abraham is, uh, that's what God is promising Abraham. And there's a lot more to it. Uh, if you want to go look uh, more into it, we talked about Abraham several months ago. It's on podcast somewhere. Uh, if you want to look more into the promise of Abraham. But specifically, what what, uh, what Stephen is bringing up here is this promise of land, that the Israelites would leave uh, and then come back and they would worship God in the land of Israel. So then he moves on to Joseph. In verse 9 he says, The patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt, but God was with him and rescued him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt, and over all of his household. So there's this crazy scene here where God has chosen Abraham as his person. And, and every single one of us, Jews and Christians alike, would all agree, like God chose Abraham. Like Abraham 
is on God's good side. We would all agree with that. The, 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 Stephen started there because that is a, a, a easy way to start with, with uh, former Jews. Right? Abraham is somebody that is loved by God. Abraham is somebody who had faith in God. Abraham is clearly part of God's people. He was the, the, the start of God's people. Right, so they all would have agreed with that. And then he goes on to Joseph, where he says, Joseph was called by God, chosen by God, to, to affect part of the promise that was leading the Israelites out of Israel and to Egypt as part of that promise that God had given Abraham, that they would be sojourners in the land of Egypt. So God had raised up Joseph to get the Israelites, to get his family out of Israel and to Egypt. But we see that the other 11, his brothers, his other 11 brothers, they rejected him. They rejected the one that God had chosen. They rejected the one that God had raised up, and they sold him into slavery. They sold Joseph into slavery in Egypt, and yet God vindicated Joseph. God proved that he really had chosen Joseph because he watched over him while he was in, Israel, uh, while he was in Egypt. And even though he endured slavery, even though he endured imprisonment, eventually God raised him up to be the number two person in all of Egypt. It was evidence that God had truly chosen Joseph, that he really was his guy, and that his brothers had gotten it wrong, and that his brothers should not have rejected him. And yet uh, God proved his case, God vindicated Joseph, and eventually uh, Joseph saved a lot of people from famine, including his own family. Uh, and he, it was because of Joseph and his role in Egypt that the rest of his family actually ended up in Egypt. So God still used it, Joseph to do the thing he had raised him up and called him to do. And then we fast forward 400 years. Israel, the Israelites are in Egypt. They've multiplied. They're a, a huge a group of people now, like a small nation. Uh, and it says uh, here, and also says in, in Exodus, where the story is originally, uh, it says in verse... Uh, 18, there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. All right, so there was a Pharaoh who rose up uh, to take control in Egypt who had no idea who Joseph was and had no idea uh, who the Israelites were uh, other than the fact that they were just people who lived on his land. And so he ended up putting them in slavery. The, this new Pharaoh enslaved the Israelites. He forced them uh, to... Uh, to endure hard labor. He forced them to endure uh, countless uh, beatings and oppressions. Uh, and in fact, what he also did was he took all of the sons of Israel, all of their children, he said if they had a male child, if they had a son, then they were to kill it. Uh, and so this Pharaoh was wicked. This Pharaoh enslaved Israel. And at the same time, God, the 400 years were coming up. And God remembered his promise. It was about time that God fulfilled his promise. And so a child was born named Moses. And this Moses was the one that God had called and chosen to lead his people out of Egypt. Moses had this incredible upbringing where he was actually raised in the, the house of Pharaoh. He was raised uh, by the daughter of Pharaoh. And so he, he got a great Egyptian education. He was able to survive uh, while a lot of the Hebrew male children were being killed. Uh, and so he, he had a great uh, Egyptian education, the best education he could have. He had all the, the wealth and the riches of Egypt. And, uh, and he began to see himself as the deliverer that God called him to be. 
He began to see himself as the one who would rescue and redeem Israel and rescue Israel out of its slavery. And so he goes down to witness his people. He goes down to see what's happening with his people, the, the Hebrews, the Israelites. And when he goes down there, he notices that there's an Egyptian who's oppressing an Israelite. There's an Egyptian who's harming uh, and abusing uh, a Hebrew. And so Joseph, uh, uh, excuse me, Moses goes over and kills him. He stops the Egyptian and he kills the Egyptian. And he thought that by doing that, his people would recognize that he was their deliverer. He was the one that was going to set them free. He was the one that was going to rescue them. That's what we see here in verse uh, 23 of chapter 7. When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand. But they did not understand. Look at how they actually responded, beginning in verse 26. On the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why, are you wrong? Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and judge over us? Do you intend to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? So here's Moses. He, he rescued an Israelite. He killed an Egyptian who was oppressing an Israelite. And he thought that the Israelites were going to accept him as their deliverer, that he was going to accept, them as, accept him as their redeemer, that God had called him to be. And yet the Israelites rejected him. The Israelites rejected Moses and said, who made you ruler? Who made you king? Who made you judge over us? And they rejected God's chosen man. And so Moses went into hiding. He ran from Egypt and for 40 years he lived out in a wilderness. Until God visited him in a burning bush. And again, just like Joseph, who was rejected by his brothers, God visited Moses and and vindicated him. God visited Moses and again confirmed that he had chosen and called Moses to be the rescuer and deliverer of Israel. In fact, it says here in verse 35, this Moses, whom they rejected, saying, who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. And so the Israelites rejected Moses, and yet God raised him up. And while they, they told him, who made you ruler and judge over us? In fact, God had made him ruler and redeemer over the Israelites. And so God raised him up, vindicated him, and proved that he really was his man, even though the Israelites had rejected him. So Moses goes back to, Israel, to Egypt. He's, by the power of God, he rescues the Israelites out of Egypt uh, and takes them towards the promised land. And on that trek, on that journey, they stop at a place called Mount Sinai. And while he's there, Moses goes up and he talks with God and he's given the law by the hands of the angels. So he's given God's commands for his people. Uh, that's what it says here in verse 38. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give us. So this is the, this is the law that the Jews 
uh, said that Stephen wasn't following. Right, this is the law that, that the Jews said Stephen was, was blaspheming, was, was speaking against. It was handed to Moses, the Old Testament law that we have. It was given to Moses. Uh, and, and so the Jews in Stephen's day were saying, this guy is speaking against it. This guy is blaspheming God because he's against the law. But Stephen goes on and he says, he is, Moses was handed this law. But yet again, we see in verse 39, our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside. And in their hearts, they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven. As it is written in the book of the prophets, did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness? O house of Israel, you took up the tent of Moloch and the star of the god Rephan, the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile in Babylon. So what Stephen is doing here in this brief Old Testament survey is he's pointing out that Israel has a history, a tendency to reject God's man for them. That they have a pattern and a tendency to reject the person that God had called. God rose up, uh, God picked Joseph to lead his people to Egypt, and the Israelites, the 12 patriarchs, they rejected Joseph and cast him into slavery. And yet God proved that Joseph really was his guy. He raised up Moses, and the Israelites, it says, thrust aside Moses as, as ruler and redeemer. And yet God raised him up and proved that he really was his guy. Again, God gave Moses the law and said, this is what I expect from my people to follow me and to live like this. And they thrust that law aside and chose instead to follow uh, their own desires and other idols and gods. Israel had this pattern, this tendency to reject the person that God had raised up and called. Now at the same time, this same group of people you see in verse 44, they had what was called the tent of witness or the tabernacle. Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern that he had seen. So the same group of people that had repeatedly rejected God, had repeatedly rejected the person that God chose for them, they had this tent of meeting, this tabernacle, where God's presence was supposed to dwell among them. Uh, Stephen goes on to recount that this tabernacle is taken into the land of Israel when they finally get to go in. And then later, under the reign of King David, and then the, king, uh, the, the reign of King Solomon, his son, it later becomes the temple. It later becomes this beautiful building, uh, this holy place uh, that, again, Stephen is being charged with speaking against. It says, this group of Israelites who rejected God's guy, this group of Israelites who continually rejected God's man and rejected God's will for their lives, this same group had that tabernacle. But just because they had the building doesn't mean they were God's people. He's making the point that just because they had this physical space doesn't at all mean that they were on God's side. That's why he says in verse 48, yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all of these things? So Stephen is pointing out that the same people that rejected God had the building. 
But just because they had it, it didn't mean they were God's people. Any more than you going to church and being in this building makes you a follower of Jesus. Just because they had the building, just because they had the structure, didn't mean that they were on God's side and that God sided with them. And in fact, we get the, the picture that God is not on their side. Because time and time again, they have rejected God's man. Time and time again, they've rejected God. Stephen ends his response in verse 51 with a very harsh critique of the people that are accusing him of blasphemy. He says this in verse 51. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered, and you who receive the law as delivered by angels and do not keep it. So Stephen gives this harsh rebuke, and he says, the whole picture that I've been painting of an Israel that has rejected God, that has rejected God's man, it still continues today. Because it didn't just happen with this one generation of Israelites who rejected Moses. You see, throughout the history of Israel, God raises up a prophet to call Israel back to himself, and they kill the prophet. God raises up another prophet to call Israel back to himself, and they torture and imprison the prophet. And time and time again, they reject the man that God has raised up, and time and time again, they reject God and his call on their life. So finally, Stephen points out that God sent Jesus Christ, the righteous one, the one that had been prophesied about for thousands of years, the one that they've been waiting for, the one that they've all of their hopes and their dreams have been placed upon. God raised up Jesus Christ, the Son of God himself, and sent them to Israel. And what did they do? They killed him. Time and time again, the Israelites are the ones who are rejecting God, rejecting the Holy Spirit, God's call on their life. The case that Stephen is making is that he's not the one blaspheming. He's not the one speaking against the law, and he's not the one speaking against the temple. The Jews are. He's turning it around on his accusers, and he's saying, I'm not the one who's speaking against God. You are. And God is on my side, not yours. Because time and time again, you have seen the law, you have been sent God's man, and yet you have rejected him every single time. Now, this text takes place in a very Jewish context. So, uh, we, I don't know about you, but I, I have never been accused of blasphemy by a Jew. And, uh, and so, that doesn't happen very much in our context. So, I want to kind of draw out uh, the principle, what this means for us today, and how we can see this in our lives. Because in our culture, we really see this in two ways. Uh, number one, we see, uh, we see this from an inclusivistic point of view. So our culture wants to say that there are multiple ways to eternal life. That, that as long as you're a good person, that as long as you, you put faith in something, there's, there are a lot of ways for you to have eternal life. But, but what Stephen is saying here is that Christianity is not inclusivistic. Christianity uh, is not a, a religion that allows for multiple different ways to heaven. 
Christianity shows uh, and believes in an exclusivistic gospel. That means there is only one way to heaven, and his name is Jesus. Because God has raised up Jesus Christ and sent him to earth to die for our salvation. And if you want to be part of the people of God, if you want to be part of the people who worship God and follow God, what you have to do is believe in Jesus. The Jews were blaspheming. The Jews were, uh, were not on God's side because they rejected Jesus Christ. They had all the outside. They were good people. They were really good at giving to the poor. They were really good at following these religious rituals and saying the name of God and sounding very pious. They were really good at all of these things, but they weren't on God's side because they didn't believe in Jesus. They rejected the one that God had sent for salvation. We don't believe in an inclusivistic faith. We don't believe in a lot of different ways to heaven. We believe in one way to have eternal life, and it's in Jesus Christ. Second way that we see this uh, lobbied against us in our culture is that we, we hear accusations about Christianity being backwards. Right? Christianity is, is against progress. Right? That Christianity is against the ideals that we need to have if we want to be the, the culture, if we want to be the country that, that, that thrives. Right? So there's things lobbied against us that say that we are... We are anti-progress. That the, that the way to life, the way to peace, the way to joy, Christianity is standing in the way of it. Right? If we just want to be a culture that experiences true peace, if we want to be a, a group of people that experience true life and true joy, uh, then Christians need to stop being against homosexuality because they're really impeding our progress to true life. Christians need to, to stop being against this thing or that thing. Christians need to stop trying to, uh, to be moral uh, and, and have these rules or, or what have you of how to live your lives. Christians need to stop these things because they're really getting in the way of true life. They're really getting in the way of true peace, of true uh, community, of true satisfaction in life. So those are the charges that are lobbied against us. They're very similar to the charges being lobbied against Stephen that Stephen is blaspheming against God, that Stephen is really standing in the way of true eternal life. And that the things that he believes, the things that he's saying are inaccurate. And that's what's lobbied against us, that the things that we do, the things that we say, the things that we believe are in, in opposition to true growth, true progress towards flourishing as human beings. But what we see in Stephen's response is that there is life in nothing else other than Jesus. That there is life in nothing else other than the Savior, Jesus Christ. That there's nothing else by which we can have eternal life. That there isn't life in just harmony. That there isn't life in just being good people. That there isn't life in just, just checking off boxes and making sure that we're loved and we love other people. But that the only way that we have eternal life is by faith in Jesus Christ. Because God has raised up Jesus as our Savior. And if we reject Jesus, then we're not on God's side. We do not have eternal life. We cannot have the joy, the peace, and the love that God provides if we don't have Jesus. Stephen is making the case there that Christians are really the ones that are on God's side. Christians 
are really God's people. Because we're the ones that follow Jesus. We're the ones that follow the one that God has given us for salvation. So let me go on. In, in case you missed it, uh, Stephen's response was a little harsh. <laughs> uh, rightfully so, but a little harsh, and they didn't like it. Uh, so in verse 54, when they heard of these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. Uh, verse 55, he says, he, Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. So what happens here is they get angry. They are livid that this Stephen would say that he is the one on God's side and all of the Jews are the ones who are not. Right? That he's the one that's actually doing what God has called him to do because he's following Jesus and that the Jews have rejected the man that God had raised up. They are livid. They are furious. It's the same reaction you might get if we talk about the fact that there's salvation only in Jesus Christ and in nothing else, or the fact that we have to follow Jesus if we want to have eternal life and joy and peace, and we, ha we, can't, uh, we can't earn life or get to life on our own. That's that same negative, visceral reaction that the Jews are livid that Stephen would say this, and so they get mad at him, and he takes it a step further. He looks up. He is able to see the glory of God. God reveals himself uh, to Stephen. He sees the glory of God, and he sees Jesus Christ standing at his right hand, and so he proclaims Jesus. He says one more time that the Son of Man is standing at the right hand of God. One more time he reminds his audience that Jesus Christ is God's man. That Jesus Christ is the Son of God. In the same way that Moses was vindicated by God. In the same way that Joseph was vindicated by God. Je uh, Stephen is saying Jesus Christ is vindicated right now because I see him standing at the right hand of God. He really is God's man. And they didn't want to hear it. So they plugged their ears, and they lunged forward, and they grabbed him, and they dragged him out of the city. And then one by one, they picked up heavy stones, and they hurled them at him until he died. Stone after stone, throwing rock after rock, breaking, breaking his bones, crushing his skull, collapsing his lungs. They threw rocks at Stephen until he died. Now, the, they thought they were right. I, I want to point this out. They really thought they were doing what was correct. Because they were God's people. They were the ones that, that stood up for the temple. They were the ones that stood up for the law, these things that God had given them. So they really thought what they were doing was taking out a blasphemer. They were taking out someone who was wrong. And Stephen, of course, clearly thought he was right. That the Jews were the ones who actually rejected God uh, and that the Christians were the ones who were following God because they believed in Jesus. They both thought they were right. And Luke makes it very clear to us in this text who was actually right. Because God makes it very clear in the life of Stephen who was actually right. Flip back with me to chapter 6, verse 8. Stephen was full of grace and power was doing great wonders and signs among the people. That's the power of God. God was working in Stephen. Who's on God's side? Stephen is. 
Because God is working miracles through Stephen. We can see that God has given evidence that Stephen is right. That it's the Christians who are the people of God because they believed in Jesus. Let's keep going. Verse 10. They could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Stephen was filled with the Holy Spirit of God, and he was responding with such wisdom that these Jews could not respond well, that they could not overcome him. God was vindicating the message that Stephen was preaching. Once again, it was, it's evidence and proof to us that, that God is on Stephen's side here because it's by his Holy Spirit that Stephen is responding with such wisdom. Let's keep going. Verse 15, that, that verse that I said, <laughs> that's weird. Like, let's get that out now. Uh, in verse 15, gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Like Stephen's face is glowing as they are throwing all of these uh, accusations against him. That's probably a reference back um, to the fact that when Moses met with God to receive the law, Moses' face was glowing. Like Moses physically, literally glowed because he had been in such proximity to the glory of God. And so uh, God is causing that to happen here with Stephen, that he's giving evidence visually that he's on God's side, that God is with Stephen, that Stephen is with God, that, that he is part of the people of God. His face is literally glowing like an angel to prove that God is on his side. Let's keep going. Verse uh, 54 of chapter 7. Uh, sorry, 55 of chapter 7. Uh, Stephen was full of the Holy Spirit and gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. So Stephen had this beautiful moment where he is filled with the Holy Spirit and he is able to witness the glory of God. What a beautiful moment. That is further evidence for Stephen that he is right. That he is on God's side. When he looks into heaven, he witnesses not just the glory of God, but that Jesus is standing at his right hand, that all that he has said is true. Has another moment there. He's on God's side. Now, let's keep going. Verse 59. As they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. It's this great moment there where he's not praying to God the Father. He's praying directly to, the, to his son, Jesus Christ. And it's, it's this moment of his death that, that looks very similar uh, to the death of Jesus Christ. Where God, Jesus cries out. Here, Stephen cries out and says, Jesus, receive my spirit. The fact that God himself received Stephen's spirit is more evidence that, he, uh, is, that God is on his side. Verse 60, falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. That is the grace and the power that he displayed earlier in the passage is coming back again. Even as they're you know, hurling rocks at him, breaking his bones and crushing his skull, he's lifting up prayers for their sake. And God, don't hold this against them. That is supernatural grace from the Holy Spirit. That is supernatural love that only God can provide. Stephen is on God's side. God is on his side. The end of verse 60, the euphemism that Luke uses here is important. When he had said this, he fell asleep. If we go back uh, two chapters, we go back to Ananias and Sapphira, uh, they died. 
Like Luke doesn't use a euphemism. Like they, they fell down and breathed their last. But here with Stephen, he uses the euphemism, they fell asleep. The point that Luke is making is that their death isn't, his death isn't permanent. That he doesn't, he didn't die and spend forever separated from God in hell. That, that Stephen died and went to be with the presence of God. And that he will one day be reunited with his body and his body will be glorified and he'll live forever in the kingdom of God. That his death is temporary because he's part of the kingdom of God. He is part of the people of God. God is on his side. He didn't die. He just fell asleep. His death, his physical death was only temporary. Luke makes it abundantly clear because God makes it abundantly clear. Stephen is right. It's the Christians who believe in Jesus that are on God's side. It's the Christians who are the people of God because they have placed their faith in the man that God raised up, in Jesus Christ as our Savior. The principle is true for Stephen. It's, it's true for us as well. Here's the main idea from this passage I want us to take away. Even if the whole world rejects our faith, we are still God's people. So stand strong. Even if the whole world rejects us and rejects Jesus Christ, we are still God's people, so stand firm. In Stephen's case, uh, everyone around him rejected the fact that Jesus was God. And this, this pattern of rejecting God and rejecting his people is not a pattern that is just uh, typical of the Israelites. Right? That is a pattern for every single one of us, that, that we have all rejected God, that we have all rebelled against him. Uh, Paul makes this case in Romans that it's not Jew and Gentile. We have all sinned before God. All have sinned and fallen short of his glory. We have all rejected Jesus, and we have all rejected the Holy Spirit. Every single one of us has rejected God and sinned against him, and rebelled against him. That is standard and typical to every single person in the world. And yet if we place our faith in Jesus, if we repent of our sin, if we repent of our, our bad ideas about Jesus, if we repent of our rejection of the Holy Spirit, if we repent of our disobedience and turn in faith to Jesus Christ, we are saved, we're part of the people of God. And even if everybody in the world rejects that message, we are still part of the people of God. <laughs> it doesn't change things. So stand firm. There are two things we can do to apply this. Number one, uh, you have to believe uh, that Jesus is the Son of God and that faith in him matters more than anything else in the world. You have to place your faith in Jesus to be part of the people of God. If you're a good person, doesn't mean you get into heaven. Just because you're loving and caring, just because you, you give a lot of money, just because you attend a building and you have some connection to a physical uh, religious thing, just because you're, you're uh, religious and have all the rituals, none of those things mean that you're getting into heaven. None of those things mean that you're on God's side. The Jews had every single one of those boxes checked off. The way to have eternal life, the way to have joy and peace is by placing your faith in Jesus. Because that's what God demands of us. God has sent Jesus to die as a sacrifice for our sins, and he raised him from the grave. 
and he is now seated at the right hand of God. And God's demand of us, God's call to us is to believe in Jesus. Place your faith in Jesus, because that's the only way for eternal life. So you have to place your faith in Jesus, and you have to recognize that faith in Jesus is more precious than anything else in the world. Because it's by your faith in Jesus that you have eternal life and nothing else. There is nothing else that can provide life like Jesus can. That's related to the the second way that we apply this. Persecution will come for Christians. It's, It's natural, it's normal, because the whole world has rejected God, and we are people who have believed in God and have placed our faith in Jesus. And so, like Jesus said, the world has rejected me, they're going to reject you. So persecution is natural and normal for Christians, and we like to think that God's going to somehow miraculously spare us. And and praise God that we live in a country where persecution isn't bad here, that we haven't really faced any intense persecution, and, and, and we pray and hope that it lasts for a very long time. But there are people around the world who are dying today for their faith. There are Christians around the world who are being persecuted and tortured and imprisoned and killed for their faith in Jesus. We like to think, because we read some stories about God miraculously saving somebody from persecution, that that's the norm, that God's going to rescue us, that God's going to redeem us somehow out of the, 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 the clutches of an evil government or out of the clutches of an, uh, a terrorist group, that somehow we're going to be set free from death and, and rescued from persecution. But at the end of the day, sometimes persecution does not end well physically. Stephen died a nasty, gruesome, horrible death. Persecution does not always end well. And if you do not believe that your faith in Jesus is the most important thing in the world, if you don't recognize that it's only by your faith in Jesus that you have eternal life and nothing else, then when persecution comes your way, you will abandon your faith. If you have not sold on the fact that it is in Jesus that you have eternal life, then you will abandon your faith at any opportunity as soon as the persecution arises. The thing I want to challenge you with is to be ready for persecution, whether it comes or not for you. And being ready for persecution means recognizing that there's nothing anybody else in the world can do for you and do against you. It's able to change the fact that you're part of the people of God if you've placed your faith in Jesus. And so there's nothing else in the world that matters. There's nothing else in the world that can possibly tempt you away from following Jesus because it's in Jesus alone that you have eternal life. That's what happened to Stephen. He was firmly convinced that it's only in Jesus that we have eternal life. And so it didn't matter what the Jews around him did to him. It didn't matter how many stones they threw at him. It didn't matter how many false accusations they lobbied against him. He was going to stand firm and proclaim Jesus Christ because it was only in him that there's eternal life. That's what happened to, uh, to Bill Wallace. As a medical missionary in China, the communists took over, and he was able to continue his practice for a little while, but uh, eventually the, the communist government Uh, lied their way onto his uh, medical compound, and they broke down the door, uh, and they arrested him, they arrested his wife, and they eventually let his wife uh, remain on house arrest, but they took him 
uh, to, a, to a work camp. Uh, and there they, they tortured him uh, and they, they brainwashed him to try to get a confession that he was an American spy to try to, um, to discredit his ministry. And Bill Wallace was, uh, was tortured and brainwashed for, for months, constantly enduring pain, constantly in, enduring suffering. Uh, he, would, he would tell people, uh, they'd ask him how he was doing. There were a few other Christians there who, who watched this happening to Bill Wallace. Uh, it wasn't happening to anybody else uh, in the camp at the time. Uh, uh, and so they were watching it happening to Bill Wallace, and they, and they could see the strain and the turmoil that he was going through, and they would ask him, how are you doing? He says, I'm, I'm doing all right. I'm just keeping my faith in Jesus. Uh, and that was true, but he would go to bed crying because of the pain, crying because of the, the suffering. He would write out promises of God. He would write out uh, the, the beautiful things that God said, and he would tape them on his wall because he needed something to keep him going, that, that there's nothing else in the world that is better than this. And so he kept writing out these promises. He kept putting them on the wall, and he endured week after week of suffering, a week after week of starvation, week after week of sleep deprivation, week after week of brainwashing. He endured this time and time again. So finally one day, uh, the guards came in and they wanted to, to, to mess with him. They wanted to try to wake him up and keep him from sleeping. And so they took long poles and they drove him through the, uh, through the, the cell and into uh, Bill Wallace's chest. And one of them missed and it broke his lung, uh, it broke his rib, collapsed his lung, and it killed Bill Wallace. And that fight, that struggle, that suffering ended. Bill Wallace recognized that there's nothing else in the world that mattered other than following Jesus. And so he stayed in China even when there were threats against his life. And he remained true to Jesus. He remained true in his faith even when suffering, persecution, and brainwashing, and, and turmoil time and again throughout, uh, throughout his imprisonment. He remained true. Because there's nothing that they could do to him to, to convince him that there was any life in anything else other than Jesus. Is that true for you? Is Christianity your get-out-of-hell-free card? That you're just here to, to, to check off the box, to, to meet the ri rituals, to meet the requirements, so that when you die, you'll get into the pearly gates. But, uh, but it's really not something that you're passionate about. Or do you recognize that there's nothing more important than your relationship with Jesus because he is the one that provides eternal life? This morning, I want to ask you uh, to place your faith in Jesus and to be strong in your faith in him. If there's anyone here who does not know Jesus, who has never placed your faith in him, I want to ask you to place your faith in Jesus for the very first time because there is not life in anything else other than Jesus. So if you're here and you're trying to find life in other things, I want to invite you to place your faith in Jesus for the very first time. In a moment, we're going to sing. As we sing, I'm going to be standing right here. I would love to just pray with you for a moment. And then after the service, I would love to talk with you about what it means to follow Jesus. So if that's you, if you've never placed your faith in Jesus, I would love for you to just come up and talk to me during the song. Everybody else, while we pray and then while we sing, I want you to be thinking about the fact that you have been set free from sin and death by Jesus. That Christ is the reason that you have eternal life and nothing else. And stand firm in that. Believe that, knowing that there's nothing else that can give you eternal life and love and joy and peace other than Jesus. Let me pray for us.
Heavenly Father, we praise you and love you and thank you for Jesus Christ who came to earth and died for us and rose again from the grave. Father, we know that you've given us life in him. And Father, we pray that, uh, that if there's anyone here who does not know you, if there's anyone here that doesn't have the life as provided by Jesus, God, I pray that today would be the day that they enter into a relationship with you, that beco- they become part of the people of God. And God, I pray every single one of us would stand firm for you because we are firmly convinced that there is salvation in no other name other than Jesus. God, embolden us. Give us a passion for you, for your gospel. Give us strength to continue, regardless of what comes our way, knowing that life is only found in Jesus. Father, we love you. We praise you, and it's in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior, that we pray. Amen.